are dismissed to their class. Uh, you can turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis. We're going to actually start in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. Uh, we are continuing our sermon series entitled Jesus is the King. And we are actually kind of continuing a series on especially the word king. Uh, we began uh, on Palm Sunday and then for Easter and now this week and two more weeks we'll consider an aspect of Jesus' ministry as king. This morning, Jesus enthroned as king, why the good news can't end with the resurrection. Uh, let me pray and I'll try to convince you of why it can't. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity now to, to look into your word. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to see him high and exalted. We pray that our hearts would cry out yes to King Jesus this morning. Help us to love him and trust him and serve him well. We love you and we pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I want to begin with an illustration. It's not original to me. Uh, it came from uh, Patrick Schreiner. And it's an illustration you already know. I think most of you, because... You grew up in America, and if you're roughly my age, you probably really knew it, uh, because the animated classic, The Lion King, came out in 1994. Can you believe it's that old? Almost 30 years old. Maybe you remember the beginning of the King, right? Or beginning of the movie, right as The Lion King is beginning, you, you know right off the bat that Simba is the heir to the throne. And, and maybe you can picture with me the scene where uh, Rafiki the baboon, do you remember him? He lifts up uh, baby Simba before the animal kingdom and, and they all bow down to Simba, this little lion cub, their future king. And then, and then the movie is the story of Simba going into uh, exile and then returning to uh, pride rock and upon his return he has to battle this mean bad uncle scar who who took the throne of course he defeats scar and then these hyenas remember them uh he defeats them all right and 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 yet even then his work is not complete at the end of the battle as media as it ends it's raining it's dark the camera, as it were, now it's animated, so there's no camera. But the camera swings over and you see Rafiki again. And he has his staff. And do you remember? He points up towards Pride Rock. An era has ended. Another era has begun or is about to begin. And so in order for Simba to claim his kingdom... To be installed as the king. We've known it all along. He has to ascend Pride Rock. To take his rightful place. To demonstrate that he has conquered. And so Simba slowly ascends the rock. And he roars. And then in response, the other lions roar. Acknowledging his dominion over this kingdom. His authority as the king. What's so fascinating is that they had to include that scene. They had to, right? Even though we knew he was the king all along, even though he had just conquered his foes, he had to take his throne. He had to take his throne. He had to ascend. He, he, he wasn't installed as king until he did ascend Pride Rock. Now, all illustrations fall short. 
but it gives us a sense of why Jesus, though designated as king throughout the Old Testament and at his birth, at his, his baptism, throughout his life, though he was tasked with defeating darkness and paying sin's penalty, and though he did all of that through the cross on Good Friday, the resurrection on Easter morning. But if you stop after his work on the cross, his conquest of the grave, the story is, is incomplete. Jesus has to be installed as the king. He has to be enthroned. He has to be recognized. He has to ascend to the right hand of the Father, sit on the throne, and receive all dominion and authority. So Jesus did not simply come to the earth to conquer. He ascended to the right hand of the Father to receive his rightful rule. And so his reign as king culminates and continues. He sits down not to cease his work, but to begin his work as the king. So the ascension then, it has been said, is the triumph of the king. And it's that triumph that we want to reflect on this morning. We're going to really be in in several passages of scripture. Normally, our diet on Sunday morning is to work through a book of the Bible or several books of the Bible in a row. But for Easter this year, I want to take some time to reflect on this theme of Jesus as king. And so we're going to be really throughout scripture. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 2. I want to share through three points. Now, some of you have begun to poke fun at me because I have three points almost every week. Eventually, I'll venture very bravely to the land of two points. And occasionally, I will go to that distant land of four, sometimes five. But, oh, are we comfortable with three? Here we go. Three points. First, man's sinful descent. Then the question, who shall ascend? And then third, perfect man's ascent. First, sinful man's descent. In Genesis chapter 2, we learn not just that God made man in his image, but how God made man in his image. What's fascinating is that we are given three verses on how God made Adam in his image, and then a few more on how God made Eve in his image. And then smack dab in the middle, we have seven verses on where. We just kind of gloss over these, right? We think Genesis 2, God makes man. But it's the, the where God made man to live that seems to get a good bit of a surprising amount, certainly, of emphasis beginning in verse 8. Let's begin reading in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. You listen along, follow along in your copy of God's word. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And just note there that Eden is larger than the garden. So it's not just the garden of Eden, it's the garden in Eden. Verse 9, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So he makes this place particularly habitable for Adam. This is a good place to put him. This one that he's just formed from the ground. Then it says the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
can comment a lot there, but look at verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So we get this image, this at least implication at this point, that Eden and the garden are on a mountain. Because rivers are coming from, flowing from. And when we get to Ezekiel 28, the prophet confirms this, that it was indeed a mountain. So this source of, of life is, is a mountaintop rich place, a well-watered garden with abundant fruit trees and humans could thrive and animals could thrive. Blessing everywhere, designed by God, planted by God. Of course, these physical blessings were just pointing to the blessing of being in God's presence. Can you imagine living in the presence of God in the Garden of Eden? This is what man was made for, to enjoy unhindered fellowship with God. Go over to chapter 3. As man falls into sin, we read in chapter 3, verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves, note it, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. God walked in the garden. And we, we read that and we think, okay, what did that look like? And all these questions arise. So interesting, Moses later on uses the same word to talk about God's presence in another place. In the tabernacle. Leviticus 26, we read, And I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Or Deuteronomy 23, Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you, to give you up, or to give up your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy. So God's presence in the midst of his people is God walking in their midst. He's going to live in their midst. That's what Eden was all about, and that's what sin separates us from. Maybe you remember when we talked about uh, the tabernacle, when we studied uh, the book of Exodus, this was some years ago, or even when we talked about uh, this passage when we preached through the book of Genesis uh, just over a year ago, we talked about the fact that the, the tabernacle and then the temple were modeled after the Garden of Eden. So it, the tabernacle was kind of God's mobile mountain, his mobile presence in their midst. It was garden-like. Turn to the end of Genesis chapter 3. Just flip over there, would you, with me. Genesis 3, verses 23 and, and 24. So Adam and Eve have disobeyed God. They've fallen into sin. And they are sent out of the presence of God. Look at verse 23, Genesis chapter 3. Therefore the Lord God sent them out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Remember the tabernacle, the temple entrance was to the east. They are expelled. Picture is clear. The pattern is set. Adam and Eve must descend from the mountain of Eden. I don't know if that popping is me. Probably my microphone. We'll see if it continues. We learn early on that sin 
always separates. First man, first woman, they had to leave God's presence. They couldn't dwell in the garden. They couldn't remain on the mountain. They couldn't meet with God and have him walk in their midst as they were made to do. This is how one author put it. Our humanity fell from the mountain of God. The resolution, this story, had, had to come in someone ascending to God himself. If descent was the result of sin, then ascent was the solution. The rest of the scriptural storyline tells of humanity's continued attempt to ascend to God, but the fact that they could not do so on their own. So let's move forward in the Bible's story. You don't need to turn to all these. Maybe you recall them. So we move forward. We we learn the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And when we studied it, we talked about how it is, in a sense, a man-made mountain. Trying to ascend into God's presence on man's terms, man's way. But it is futile. In fact, God has to come down in order to see what they've put together there. So cute it is. They attempted to exalt themselves above the heavens to ignore God. But when they did, they found they descended even further. Remember Genesis chapter 22. Mount Moriah. Abraham binds his son Isaac. And he learns then that on the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Genesis twenty-two fourteen. Or maybe you recall in the book of Exodus, the significance of Mount Sinai. Adam has to, or sorry, Moses rather, has to ascend the mountain to receive the law. Do you remember this? God descends down, comes down to meet with Adam on the mountain to receive instruction Moses does regarding the building of the tabernacle, this tent of meeting. The people couldn't ascend the mountain. A mediator, Moses, had to go in their place To meet with God. The tabernacle as we said. God descends to dwell in the midst of his people through this cloud. This portable mount of the Lord. Then we have the temple. Right? Do you remember the temple? Where is that built? On Mount Zion. On what is known as the temple mount. Right? We know this from Jerusalem. There is a mountain meeting place in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. So to worship there, how did you get to Jerusalem? You went up to Jerusalem. You went up to the temple. You went up to the temple mount. I want to reflect on this just a little bit with you. Turn with me to Psalm 110. Would you turn with me to the middle of your Bible, Psalm 110. Right after the largest, the longest, Psalm, Psalm 119, we have Psalm 110. So to worship in the temple was to ascend, to go up to the temple, up to the temple mount, Mount Zion. And in beginning in Psalm 110, all the way to Psalm 134, You have these series of short psalms. Do you notice anything about them beyond the fact that they are short? Notice notice the title that is given there. 
These are the songs of what? Ascent. This is what the faithful Israel would would recite. This is what they would be saying. This is what they would be singing as they went up, as they ascended to the Temple Mount. These were sung as pilgrims ascended Mount Zion. These were songs of longing. The longing of the faithful Israelite wasn't just to ascend the Mount in worship, but to remain there, to stay in Mount Zion, in the presence of the Lord. Listen to a few of these psalms. You'll recognize some of these. Listen to the Israelites' longing. Psalm 23, verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And here it is. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 36. The feast on the abundance. They feast on the abundance of your house. And they, you give them drink from the river of your delight. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Psalm 26, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where you dwell. Psalm 27, this is perhaps the clearest. One thing have I asked from the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to acquire in his temple. To which we should just raise our hand and say, how? Given that Moses was sent away and had to descend, Given that only the priests could go, and only once a year, how in the world could they even aspire to dwell, to dwell, to remain, to live in God's presence? How, how could they long for this? How is it that songs could be sung about dwelling in Yahweh's house all the days of my life? Sinful man can't dwell in God's house. Not for one day. The story of humanity is the story of we've tried and we cannot. Sin separates. We have descended and we cannot ascend. We cannot dwell there. We cannot return to the mountain presence, the mountain dwelling of God. There's no back to Eden. Perhaps the most vivid confirmation of this comes in a surprising passage in Isaiah. Would you turn there with me? Just a few books to the right here. Isaiah chapter 14. This passage is a striking one. It records a God-inspired taunt. A God-inspired taunt. God inspires a taunt for the nation of the king of Babylon. Some of you think you're good at taunting. This taunt might be better. That's a good taunt. Notice the introduction, just so we see the context here. Isaiah 14, pick up in verse 3. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Look down at verse 12 as this taunt continues. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. 
How you have cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Notice the descent. Right from, from the heights of pride and arrogance and rebellion, this king's downfall, the, king of down, the downfall of the king of Babylon, brings him to the depths of Sheol. Descent was the result of his rebellion, his pride, but it wasn't the goal. His goal, his longing, was to ascend, to be in the place of dominion and authority, to be in the place of the king. He wanted to be up. Ascend it up to be like God. Of course, in saying this, he's echoing the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Like God, you will be. He's echoing the people at the Tower of Babel. Ascend, you will. And so it's not surprising that many see here an illusion and an arrow pointing to the desire and then ultimately the fall of Satan himself. Sinful man, no more than Satan himself. He cannot ascend to God, right? In fact, the desire to ascend to God, to earn our way to God, to get back to Eden, to make things right on our own is the height of rebellion against God. And it will be judged by God. Which leads to point number two. Who shall ascend? Who shall ascend? Would you turn with me back to Psalm 24? Psalm 24. Who shall ascend? As you're turning there, listen to Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? The answer comes in verse 2 of Psalm 15. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Look now at Psalm 24, verse 3, similar question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Who can go up to the mountain? Who can live there? Who can go into God's presence? Who can return to Eden? The answer comes in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Notice the question again at the beginning of verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? It is the question for sinful man outside of Eden. And, of course, the Bible prepares the way for one who will come, who will ascend. He will do right. He will be right. He will speak right. He will have clean hands and a pure heart. He'll be like us, a man, but he will be unlike us, sinless. Look down at verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? 
the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. The longing of every Israelite to dwell in the house of the Lord forever was the longing for this king of glory, this perfect man to ascend to God, to bring worshipers with her or with him rather that we might, though sinful, be forgiven and united and then dwell in God's presence forever, which leads to point three, man's perfect, sorry, perfect man's ascent. Would you go to one more passage with me to Acts chapter one? Man's perfect ascent. In the New Testament, after the Gospels, you have the book of Acts, Acts chapter one. Jesus is the perfect man. He's the one with clean hands and a pure heart. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. He took our sins, died in our place, so that all who turn, turn from their sin and trust in him alone, will be saved, will be reconciled, will be brought with him, as it were, to God. God raised him from the dead on the third day. Paul says, then the resurrected Christ appeared to the disciples and and to hundreds, to hundreds over those 40 days. And then 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven. Luke records this ascension twice. We read the first time at the end of Luke. Now the beginning of Acts, we read the second time. Let's begin in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, As he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. One author asked the question that I think we all kind of maybe have thought but don't want to ask, which is, wouldn't it be easier in evangelism if Jesus hadn't have left? You know, if he was still on earth, doesn't, doesn't it seem, at least from one perspective, that the ascension was a really bad strategy? Like remove the clearest proof right away? I mean, like, what's going on here? Let's back up in the story. Consider the perfect man's ascent again. In a sense, what we just read isn't Jesus' first ascension. First, he does climb a hill, doesn't he? This hill is called Calvary. John 12, we read, Jesus said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus ascended Calvary. He was lifted up in his crucifixion, but it was no return to Eden. This is how another author put it. Zion becomes the ironic mountain of death. 
Golgotha, the place of the skull, with its man-made trees. It's no Eden. Jesus isn't like Moses. He doesn't just ascend a hill to the meeting place of God and man. No, Jesus ascends to be the meeting place of God and man. The curtain is torn in two. Jesus is the way back, the only way. But his death isn't the end of the story, and neither is his resurrection. Because he ascends to heaven, what what the author of Hebrew calls to Mount Zion. Psalm 24, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? Jesus. Jesus can. Jesus has. He is the King of glory. He is the perfect God, man. He is the Lord Almighty. He alone can stand before God in the holy place with clean hands and a pure heart. And if you are trusting in him, you are with him. You are united to him. His purities, his achievements, his record, his privileges are now yours. In Christ, you have clean hands and a pure heart. And so in Christ, you may ascend the hill of the Lord. And in Christ, you may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In Christ, you can say, in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is why Paul, when talking about the testimony of every believer, zooms in, not just on forgiveness, but through union with Christ, that we have been dead and raised and seated. Ephesians 2, verse 7 Verse verse 6, raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So by faith, united with Christ. As a result, what's true of him is true of us. Not just in the resurrection, but in the ascension. So his death is our death. We no longer face the judgment of God. His life is our life. We will rise to eternal life after our physical death and his ascension is our ascension brothers and sisters his presence in heaven today is the guarantee of our access today before the father in prayer and it is the guarantee today of our future presence with the father in eternity Jesus had to ascend to the right hand of the Father, sit on the throne, receive dominion and authority. Remember Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the author of Hebrews says, to which of the angels did he ever say that? Jesus did not simply come to the earth to conquer. The perfect man did what none of us could do. He ascended to the Father. And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, claiming his rightful rule. And in doing this, his work as king culminates and continues. He sits down. He is installed in order to begin to rule. He acted as king here on earth. We reflected on that two weeks ago. Starting in the Old Testament. But now he reigns as the king in heaven.
When we think of the ascension of Christ, I want you to think of it from two perspectives. From the perspective of the disciples here on earth, and even from our perspective today, Jesus departed. But that's not the only perspective the Bible gives us. From the perspective of the Father in heaven, Jesus arrived. As rightful king, the ascension wasn't just kind of this optional final flourish. What an exciting add-on. No, it is his triumph. It is his coronation. So we sing, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee. And hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. And then listen to the second verse. Crown him the Lord of life who triumphed o'er the grave and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing. Who died and rose on high. Who died eternal life to bring. And lives that death may die. Let's pray. Father God, we are so mindful that we think of the gospel message as simple, and it is basic, easy to understand, and it is, and yet the depths of which we will never plumb, the implications of which we cannot fathom. Father, we thank you that you not only sent Jesus, that he lived a perfect life and died in our place for our sins, that he was raised victorious or the grave, but that he is now ascended and seated and reigning, that he has been installed as the king. And though we think about his ascension and think, man, he left, he departed. Thank you that you give us the heavenly perspective, which is... Sit at my right hand. Rule and reign till I give all your enemies and they are but a footstool. And as we live now in the church day and wait for that to be sight. Father, would you give us strong confidence and worshipful hearts in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray.